morning, sunshine. Good morning. <laughs> we are recording at almost 8.30 in the morning. Uh, I went to bed around 3 o'clock because it was my day off and uh, my video game came out with new content. And so it's going to be an interesting podcast because we've got the sounds of domestic life coming from Casa de Sharapa. Yeah! Yeah, there's producer yeah! Nick. Yeah, it's my house. It's Nick's house. <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving now. <laughs> okay, bye, Nick. Have a good day at work. Um, <laughs> and you'll hear producer Indiana in the background, various other things. Yeah. So a little slice of life episode. Uh, there we are. For clear. Yeah. yeah. And people may notice my, my microphone may not sound as good as usual, or not that it always sounds very good because I'm always bad with that stuff. But anyways, uh, I am currently looking out the window at Sacred Heart Basilica at, oh, on the nice. campus at Notre Dame. What are you doing at Notre Dame? So, uh, so well, first, uh, last week, I, I went on a week of holidays, and I went to visit the Lasts, our good friends, the Lasts, uh, mm-hmm. out in D.C., and just, like, Shannon keeps on saying, oh, I don't know how, how being with us is restful, but it kind of, it really was. Like, yeah. I got I to gotta watch Flash play baseball. That's pretty cool. And it was amazing. I ble- So, thanks to Father Dan, who wrote an amazing prayer for the blessing of bats. I blessed yes. their bats, and it was mm-hmm. truly awesome. It's a really uh, good blessing. It was a really good. I'll read it out some next time when I'm not because I'm using my phone to record today. So, um, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so the, the games were great. Uh, he also had like his. He actually threw a no hitter. It's very impressive in five innings. Mm-hmm. Fourteen strikeouts. It's impressive. It is. It is if, um, for that level. Uh, it's really impressive. And it was like it was really kind of cool because it's like you, you know, I'm not a huge baseball guy, but like you could see the difference between his pitching and everyone else. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's just like night and day. But no, but we had a great time. We had, uh, you know, uh, just nothing like it was just one of those like great restful weeks where I didn't have to run to do anything. I kind of did, did kind of turn my brain off from Paris stuff, and it was kind of great. That it's is kind of great. It's kind of great. Joy brings me joy. And then, so yes. And then this week, I for two weeks, I'm on the campus at Notre Dame. Yeah. <laughs> Indiana seems to be very happy. She's about very my, happy for you. For, yes. for me right now. Uh, uh, I'm on Notre Dame campus because I'm doing my residential for school right now, and uh, it's on it's uh, it's online again this year because when they were planning it with COVID and all that jazz, they weren't sure uh, what it'd be like for this time of year. So we had they just planned for online. But I pleaded with my bishop, and he said yes that I could come to like here for two weeks, so I can go raid the library. That's great. Uh, so yesterday, and actually, I found this really great feature on the Notes app on your iPhone. Uh-huh. You can, if you go to the photo part, it'll give you like a bunch of drop-down pictures, and one of the options is scanning. Oh, okay, yeah. So I didn't have to go downstairs to the to the scanners. I just use yeah. my phone, scanning away German texts that I need to nice. get because my, my German is not that great yet, but I, I need to get the German stuff because there's not a lot of stuff in English that like criticizes Ratzinger and stuff, but uh, there's a lot of stuff in German, obviously. <laughs> yes, I can imagine that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so just did that. I, I went to um, Jeff Pajanowski's for dinner on Monday, who a good friend of, the, friend of ours. He says hello, by the way. Okay. And uh, it's really, it really great catching up with him and his family. Uh, uh, Rick and Nicole Garnett were there too, and it was just a nice little night. And Father Bill Daly, and then uh, yes, last night went out uh, for dinner. Oh man, there's just I forget his name now already, but my friend Tim took me to this 
this um, fried chicken sandwich place. Ooh. It's like 10 times better than Chick-fil-A. Interesting. It was the best chicken sandwich I've ever had in my life. Was it like a fast food joint or like nope. a sit down place? A sit down place. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. It was, I got the spicy one. I, I, I was like, this is, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Americans know how to do fast food or fried food very well. Yes, we do. It's something Canadians suck at. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So now it's raining outside. It looks like, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of, and then I, yeah. So just do, doing online classes every day, recording at 8 a.m. It's great. Mm-hmm. Speaking, what's great? Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. So I'm having a lovely day off. Mm-hmm. Um, I my brain's fried, so I don't know if I said this before we started recording or after, but um, my video game came out with new content, mm-hmm. and I was up to three in the morning playing it, and then I woke up at six, and here we are recording at eight. And so I had prepared myself some uh, water for the morning. And um, I don't know if you get, ever get these like little packets. It's got like electrolytes and stuff in it. You mix it with your water, makes okay. it like a little Gatorade. I saw one at my brother's house that said like energy. It's got like B vitamins and caffeine. It's mm-hmm. like two cups of coffee in this thing. Mm-hmm. And I so I mixed it last night, and uh, it's this green sludge. And I drank it and immediately regretted it. It tasted terrible, terrible. And my heart started running, and I, the only thing I could do to calm down my heart was to drink one of uh, Nick's espressos, and then that made me feel so much better. So Drinking an espresso calmed down your heart. Yeah, 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 made me feel better. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, producer Nick and producer Indy and I had a dance party mm-hmm. uh, just a half hour ago. Delightful. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, oh, so we're does, doing it. Does producer Nick actually drink that stuff? No, I opened it up. Uh, I think they were what? just trying it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Now the regular stuff, like there's some with like some vitamin C in it. That's fine. This one's just got regular electrolytes in it, so it's good to go. I'm ready to to record this chaotic episode of uh, Clerically Speaking. Indeed, indeed. There we go. I'll get myself not looking down so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, cool. So should we do some like uh? theological emergencies yeah we got a lot of emergencies we got a lot of them all right let's let's do that thank you for calling clerically speaking if this is truly a theological emergency please dial one at any time hi i flushed my goldfish down the toilet and i wanted to know is that a sin theological emergency we'll take your call at 412-912- Seven nine nine five. Hey, Father Anthony and Father Harrison. My name is Anne Marie, and I have a question about the prayer of the faithful during Mass. At my church, we always pray that we will be able to work toward a future without sorrow or injustice. This always strikes me as odd because it makes it seem as if it's in our power to create a completely just world. I want to know your thoughts. Do you think this is what they mean? Thanks. Love the podcast. Well, Anne Marie, if if that's your real name, I think that's a very good question. I I, I would actually agree with you. I think I, I find that there's a and a bit okay. There's obviously always some subtlety you can throw towards this, right? Mm-hmm. Working towards a world free of sorrow and injustice is, in the end, the eschaton, God's inbreaking finally and definitively. Uh, uh, and destroying sin once for all in definitive fashion. And so in that sense, the church is always working towards that, but always working mm-hmm. towards it with Christ in the church. 
But I think your intuition is also right because it tends to be used more as a, we can do this. We can actually create a world of peace. We can actually um, we can actually become the bearers of a peaceful world in this life. And um, I don't know. I, my sense of life in the last few months has been that we're not very good at that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and uh, I don't, you know, we should always work against injustice. We should always um, work towards removing sorrow as best we can, right? Um, but it's never going to be perfectly done in this life. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's... it's um... So, yeah, I definitely agree that that's actually what we have to work toward. And praying that we have the grace to work toward that is a good prayer. But we run into this one of these things where we do this either-or thing instead of this both-and thing um, in the prayers of the faithful sometimes, where we kind of ask for the power to do things. Um, And it almost emphasizes what we can do too much. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, Jesus does just take care of everything in such a way that we can just sit back and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gets tricky a little bit. First of all, the prayers of the faithful are uh, optional, and we should just not do them because... Uh, well, they're not optional on Sunday. Oh, they're not optional on Sunday? It actually says, then the universal prayer is said. Oh, does it? Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the prayers of the faithful are great. <laughs> we should do them every Sunday, as I've always said. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I think you have to have that, that, that balance. I remember I had a very liberal... Um, Christology professor, uh, who I'm actually very grateful for because he's a good teacher and he made me think about things very deeply. Um, shook my faith incredibly in seminary, which was not fun, but was very uh, helpful to my overall formation. And was basically pushing this argument that uh, you know the structures of sin in the world can ultimately be um, removed if we change them. And like I get that emphasis, I get working towards that. And there are certain structures of sin that we can dampen or get rid of. We can help create justice in the world in a lot of different ways and work toward that. But I think ultimately you have to realize that there is going to be suffering and sorrow until Jesus comes again. So it's, it's that weird kind of balance. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, there's uh, actually, I, I was just reading today, um, Pope Francis's um, catechesis. He's doing the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Oh, fun. And he's talking about old age a lot. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was actually. The poor was, guy. Cause he's old. He actually says that at the end, he is us old people, he says. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do like what Francis is preaching. He has a certain way about him. Yeah, there's, a, there's a realism of life to him that I think is really important. Um, yeah. But he was talking about how the loss or the zealousness for justice is allowing the disappointment of life to rule over us. Mm. And that he called, and then this, the West or the, the ancient monastic priests and so on and then masters call this acedia and i was like yeah acedia. there you go <laughs> um but that we i love that sin it's my favorite one but he was yeah he was talking about this that we need to constantly renew this zeal for for justice um um and the willingness to even suffer uh, for the sake of justice, that this is one of the Beatitudes and that, um, and he brings it into like old life. And he says that the, having lived through life, it can be easy to just check out and to stop caring. But he says, 
uh, the great witness to faith is the one who, even in old age, still has a zealousness for life, which is also a zealousness for justice and to be a witness to the charity of Christ. And I thought I was like, it was really good. It was really cool. And um, and I think that's kind of bringing in all this together with those prayers of the faithful that we should always we should always want to do this, but we also have to recognize that we're going to be imperfect at this. We're not yeah. going to succeed at this perfectly. I'll be kind of talking about this in presbyteral exhortations, anyways. Uh, but we're, we know we are not perfect. We are weak human beings, and um, we need to accept that it's not going to be perfected until Christ comes, and that any good we do in regards to that too is in union with Christ in His Church. Right. And we also have to realize that whoever writes the intercessions is also imperfect. And uh, sometimes the wording can get a little goofy, mm-hmm. even though it's well-intentioned. This happens all the time. Amen. Hey, fathers. My name is John. I'm a seminarian from the Diocese of Syracuse. My question is regarding general confession. Uh been a lot of talk about it. I've heard some people do it, especially before ordination. Um, so just wondering if you have any thoughts on that and uh, whether it might be a good idea. Thank you. Um, so general confession, it's, um, this is my understanding of it, Father Harrison. It is a kind of a spiritual practice in the context of a sacramental confession where you kind of go over your entire life, uh, or as long as you can remember, and bring all the sins, even those that have been forgiven, um, to confession. Now, we know that those sins have already been forgiven if you've confessed them before or you've just made a good confession before. Um, but a lot of times people do it at a kind of big moment in their life. Um, maybe they do a Marian consecration, uh, like uh, the seminarian from uh, Syracuse said, like before ordination, maybe before marriage, maybe like your 20th year as a priest or whatever. And it's kind of a way to um, sum up God's mercies for you in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the one thing that um, Protestants uh, recognize is that there are times in our lives where there is a conversion of heart, a major conversion of heart. And a lot of times Protestants would be like, that's when you get baptized. And we like, no, 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 you already get the grace of baptism. So there's certain things in the church that we do to signify that, like marrying consecration or general confession, these kind of moments that we make a genuine conversion of heart or turning towards God. So uh, I don't think everyone needs to do this. Um, I think it only needs to be done if you do it like once or twice in your life. But I, I did it one time uh, in seminary. Um, and it can be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is with it, if you're going to do that, make sure it's it's very helpful if you have a spiritual director for that, or at the very least, uh, give the priest some heads up and schedule an appointment because they usually take a little bit longer because it's your own mm-hmm. profession. But it's uh, I think it's a good thing in general. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't question John's name. I mean, because he's a seminarian, so clearly it's not his real name. Clearly, this is a... How dare you be on social media or on a podcast as a seminarian? I know. I know. You keep your mouth shut until the stole hangs straight, my friend. And even then, you keep your mouth shut. even then, yeah. Don't do what we do. (laughs) We're going to get canceled eventually. Probably. Um, So... With regards to all that, uh, yeah, I've done it a few times myself. Um, um, I and I've had people ask me to do them. Um, I don't think they should be like some people say, Can I "Do it once a year." I'm like, no, I don't think that's a good idea uh, because I think I think there's also uh, something we have to be aware of and how it's done. Often, I think some people do it because they're afraid if I don't confess X, Y, and Z. Yeah. If it if if I forgot it for whatever reason, then I'm not going to be forgiven, and God's not going to accept me into heaven. Yeah. And so that that can be a dangerous mentality to approach, like because there's still a lot of that mentality of I have to do all these things, and I have to 
I have to make sure I say this. And if I forgot it and it was like, let's say I forgot a serious sin and just, you know, okay. Yeah. Next time you go to confession, you can bring it, but it's like, they're forgiven because you didn't intentionally withhold it. It's just for whatever reason. Like, especially when you like maybe first time back in confession after 25 years. Yeah. Right. You're going to forget some big sins, but you're not intentionally withholding it back. The grace still works. Uh, and I think the other place where it, it's, it's valuable in all of this is um, the note. Like I was actually just listening. Uh, I took a walk this morning and I'm listening to Rowan Williams book on Augustine. Mm-hmm. He talks about confess the word confession and, and that it's not just like confession of sins, but it's also a confession in God's love. Mm-hmm. And so I think that thing you brought about up earlier about this, like summarizing God's merciful action in your life is really important because it, really that is at the heart of going to confession it is not just i did these things but it's also confessing the love of god that's merciful towards me and so i think it, i agree i think it's a good practice i did it before my both my diaconal and priestly ordinations i think because yeah. they're both really important i did one before i went to seminary too i think um you know and i you know maybe once every 10 years after that like i'm thinking like my 10th anniversary might be a good time to do one again um just as a way to sum things up, because it also helps you over time, if you're honest with yourself, you, un- you see the deeper roots behind a certain sin. Sure. And that you can confess in that. So you say, I did these things that I know I was forgiven of, but I didn't realize I was actually giving into this sin at the depths of my heart. Mm-hmm. And I need to confess that, which can be absolved in that situation, right? So um, I think it's a good practice. I, I, but yes, uh, please make an appointment. Do not show up in the confessional saying I'm making a general confession because they tend to take at least 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and if you're like, Oh, I don't know if I should do this or not. Don't worry about it. Um, it's not an essential thing. Um, no. here's the one thing though. It's a little bit odd about it. Um, cause I've seen the good fruits of it. I'm kind of in general in favor for it. If one feels called to do so, but it's also kind of odd having a kind of spiritual devotion in the context of a sacrament. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, this is why I I think it's always good that when you're doing a general confession, also bring stuff that you would actually bring to a regular confession. Okay. Yeah. Then, then you're not, uh, I mean, it's talking more in the confessional. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like really. Yeah. It's, it's, I I think, I think to like, it'd be, getting my brain going about like the history of confession itself mm-hmm. uh, around this because uh, its current form has not been the definitive form for all of history. True. So uh, I think, I think there has been this place, especially I want to say, and please don't quote me on this, but I want to say like where, cause individualized confession really becomes a thing through Irish Catholicism actually mm-hmm. it's the one as always, for as always blame the Irish through the monks, Irish monks. Um, but there was a notion of also like the spiritual connection of doing like the spiritual devotion through individual okay. reconciliation. Yeah. But I'm having a vague memory of that. That's all. So there, that might be where there's a place for it. Yeah. Well, uh, John, if that is real name, hang in there, buddy. Uh, seminary, it gets worse before it gets better, but it's all worth it. If God's calling you to the priesthood, it really is. It hey, is. The is awesome. Yeah. We'll say a prayer for you today. Mm-hmm. Just one though. Just one because yeah. we'll forget after that. And also, our prayers are, like, really good, so one should be enough. I mean, we're kind of perfect. Uh, more or less. Right? Yeah. S- speaking of perfection, let's kind of delve into that a bit in <laughs> Presbyterian Exhortations. And now it is time for Presbyteral 
exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, yes, quite. Yes, quite. All right, so. I got notes. Oh my goodness, you've got a bunch of notes on a little piece of paper. Oh my gosh, the writing is so small. Yeah. So I've been, well, I've been pondering this. I love um, it when you ponder. I, I ponder, and I'm in the midst of studies. <laughs> so this is going to be great for Father Anthony on four hours of sleep. Yep. Not even four hours, and yep. uh, early in the morning. This is going to just be right up his alley. Um, just heavy, heavy stuff. Um, <sighs> Because in my introduction, I've been kind of really solidifying an argument about why I'm studying Ratzinger and his understanding of the human person. Um, and as I look at modernity more and more, and as I understand our current cultural climate, especially in North America or in the West, I would say, especially in the realm of politics and political discourse, um, there is, I'm actually, I just remembered one thing. Uh, this is the point I wanted to make, and I forgot to write it down. If I don't write it down, I will forget it. Um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or if, or, you know, stop me if I'm getting too complicated. Okay. But there is almost like a revenge lust in terms of anything done wrong ever. Yeah. Um, we do not want justice. We actually want blood. <laughs> yes. I right. We want someone said major uh, motivating force in the culture. Yeah. And I hate it. Fair. Like, I will be honest. It's actually got me thinking like, should I just like do Twitter? Not because I hate it per se, yeah. but it's like, I, I know I can, and I've, I've experienced it before. I've said a joke and you've experienced this before you say something and people say, you know, the whataboutism stuff comes out and all this stuff. And you have to kind of distance yourself for a while until kind of things smooth over. And it's not like you ever say things that are, you know, controversial per se, but it's just people from their own situation don't like it, whatever. And there's a, there's a strong literalism, you know, that everything you say has, it just means what it says. There's no deeper meaning. There's no poetics to language, et cetera. Sure. I really, it, and I think it actually exacerbates, like, I don't know, at least experience, like personally, experientially as a priest, um, I think it exacerbates even like a, a minor anxiety of I am being asked to bear a meaning, a symbol, a pigeon just flew onto my porch. <laughs> uh, meaning a symbol uh, or sorry, I'm, I'm asked to bear something that is too weighty for me to bear. Like, and then I become identified with it. Yeah. It's, it's this thing where, um, people aren't using your words as a way to communicate, but as a, as ammo to destroy you. Yeah. And so you have to carry not only, uh, meaning, but you also bear the weight of someone's, uh, malicious interpretation of your words. Yeah. Um, and we can get on this. It's not just internet stuff. This hap will yeah. happen in preaching as well, uh, where people are looking at your words instead of receiving them, looking at them as ammo to somehow tear you down or ignore your arguments or yeah. destroy you instead of a yeah. uh, reception and meditation on what's been said. 
Right, exactly. So, um, and we are meant to be bearers of meaning, right? Because as, as human beings, we both can perceive and understand things, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and we ourselves communicate and reveal things. Um, so, okay, I'm going to go on a little, little genealogy of, of stuff um, here. Let's, let's go a little philosophical history here. Um, and we have to remember then to be human, though, at least for the Christian context, is to be a creature, right? We're finite. We are bound by time and space. And in order to be, we are dependent on a creator, right? God upholds everything in existence. This, is, this means that there's never a moment of our lived history and existence where God's not upholding us. Yeah. If there's a second or a minuscule of a second that he's not upholding us, we cease to be. Mm. Um, and that's so to be a creature then means to be dependent, which means that there is a lack and a, and a weakness on our part. That's part of just being creature. There is a poverty. Um, the stuff I'm doing in my thesis is to say that poverty is also simultaneously a richness because that's where grace enters, right? Um, I think I've talked about this before, this nothingness that's at the heart of being a creature because we are created literally out of nothing uh, is also simultaneously the place where God's communion with us resides. Um, but, okay, so we are these particular individual people. Uh, we are dependent on a creator. We're bound by space and time. But meaning and truth is universal, right? Red is red, right? Anthony is a human being, maybe less so at 8 o'clock in the morning, but he's still yes. a human being, right? Um, so to be a creature, to be human, who has a rational soul, is able to know and reveal the meaning of things. By ver- by ver- but by virtue of its being a creature, it never does so completely or perfectly. Okay. Does this make sense so far? <clears throat> so there are universals that we can communicate, but because of our dependency, um, we never communicate. We never communicate those things perfectly. Right. Um, you show me that you sh- like you reveal to me what it, what humanity is by just mm-hmm. encountering you, but you are not the fullness of humanity. Correct. Despite all the hair. Yes. <laughs> um, you're not the fullness and I'm not the fullness of humanity and no one is. And this is why for really for up until modernity, human beings always thought in, in, in symbolic fashion. Hmm. Art was symbolic. Uh, language had poetic meaning to it. Um, there was this constant need to recognize. There was always this recognition that that particular individual while he may communicate universal truth is not the truth he communicates. He is the bearer of it. But that means that there's a symbol, there's a symbol, symbol, uh, symbolological essence to what it means to be human, that I bear this thing, but I am not the thing I bear. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah this is a, a big thing that was when I was studying poetry, that was big for me, uh, was this idea that uh, good poetry uses the concrete, the fallible, the finite to point towards an infinite it cannot reach yeah um, but it but good poetry points well to those things while using the concrete um so often uh bad poetry a poetry that we intuitively don't like but people think is fancy uses all this like ethereal vague um just trying to go straight to the spiritual but you can't do that you have to like bounce off the physical in order to uh point toward uh, the metaphysical. 
oh my gosh, why am I forgetting his name? The Jesuit English poet, Gerald Manning Hopkins. Yes. Right. I've read some of his poetry. Not, I'm not a big poetry guy, but, yeah. um, but like his poetry is everything you're talking about there. Like mm-hmm. the, the adjectives he uses to describe something has this like visceral and carnal sense to it right. to communicate a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. This is sacramentality, by the way. Exactly. It's the Catholic uh, view. Yeah. Um, and this was axiomatic for most of history. Like even, even the Greeks had a sense of this, even though they, even, even if like Aristotle and stuff kind of believed in myths and, 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 uh, kind of this eternal return of being, um, the circle, like that, that time is circular. There is no beginning or end to it. Um, there was still the sense of the finitude of man and that he is not everything. He's not, he's not the universal he, he is the particular that reveals the universal so like balthazar would call this the concrete universal right and that jesus is the concrete universal anyway, i'm getting ahead of myself here because uh well actually no i'm not because jesus is the true man mm-hmm. right yes so this is where this is like this is this is the real radicality of the christian claim the particular humanity of jesus christ reveals not just the fullness of what humanity is it, because his humanity is the perfect humanity, mm-hmm. but it also reveals the fullness of who God is. Yeah. And if you let that sit, that's actually really scandalous. Why does that person with that particular body at that particular mm-hmm. time in that particular gender in that particular culture, yeah. how is he the true human? But that's the Christian claim. Yeah. And that's, Really, and we and we actually really don't like that uh, nowadays. Um, and so, in Christ, because He's fully God and fully man, the infinite and the finite come together without becoming confused or separated. Mm-hmm. Right? Good old Chalcedonian Christology. Love it. But then, and 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 just uh, one last thing is that uh, the incarnation then intensifies man's ability to be a bearer and a revealer. But it, um, so like the meaning that he reveals and bears is actually more now because of his unity to the person of Jesus, Jesus or God's unity with a man. But it's also the distinction is also intensified because you realize how much you're not God. <laughs> right. So we're it's is it like saying like our our um, new redeemed uh, closeness to God? both one makes us closer, but also intensifies the fact that we are not. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. It's why the saint who the closer they get to God realizes how far away they are from him. Mm-hmm. Right. Or uh, this is what like the fourth Lateran council would call like uh, the doctrine of analogy for every similarity there is between uh, God and man, there's an ever greater dissimilarity. And it's also that like uh, when you read good biographies of the saints or good stories of the saints, mm-hmm. not just hagiographies, not, I'm not trashing all hagiographies. There's, Mm-hmm. to the purpose of them as well mm-hmm. they are more distinct and more fully human uh they are more striking as human beings mm-hmm. because of their holiness right there's a deeper communication of what it is to be human yeah and what it is to be close to god um in their individuality because they're also different and actually i mean that little thing about hagiography because it's true like the older hagiographies seem to make some of them even almost like godlike it seems sometimes yeah but that comes from that symbolic worldview, right? Yeah. That that this person's life bore a meaning greater than themselves. Yes. And they were transparent to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what made them so great. And so today, 
we like to hear the nitty gritty. We like to hear the darkness. We like to hear uh, the failures of a saint and stuff sure. like this, because that's how we feel like we can be close to them. And there is definitely something to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that older, that older hagiography really comes from that symbolical worldview. Right. Yeah. Um, but then modernity like destroys symbol. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in the bad guys. Well, sort of bad guys. I had a conversation with a friend last night. He's trying to help me see that Hegel's not as bad of a guy as sometimes he likes to be made out to be. However, I'm still going to call him a bad guy today. I'm uh, also always call him a bad guy. Yeah. Because what happens is, so, okay. So in Jesus Christ, the, um, the infinity of God dwells in human form. Mm-hmm. And for Hegel, it's like, this is what like Blondell will call the Christian infinite, whereby like what we understand the infinite to be is actually a, a product of Christian revelation. But modern philosophy says, yeah, that's true, right? So for Hegel, it's the world spirit, right? Um, but it becomes subsumed to this world, right? This is what we call immanentism. There's nothing else. There's nothing that transcends everything about the universe, the meaning of life, and all that stuff is subsumed to this kind of created realm. Um, and so for Hegel, he's like trying to understand how the spirit unfolds itself uh, throughout history. Um, but th- what he does though, is he also collapses God into this world. Mm-hmm. God needs this world to become himself mm-hmm. kind of idea, right? Um, there's no analogy between God and creation anymore. God and world become one. Um, and what this does now is that because even like <laughs> even the, the notion of history as something narrative where it can bear meaning is actually a Christian notion. Uh, Joseph yes. Pieper has a great book, little book called The End of Time on a philosophy of history. And he says, you can't do a philosophy of history without taking Christianity seriously, because Christianity literally said is the, is the first is the only place that has ever said that history has meaning. And so Hegel and Marx and all these guys actually like rob Christianity of its of its notion of history but then like imminentize it, make it just something flat and in this world, and then try to work out the logic of history through, through reason. Um, so what this does though, like through like Marx and stuff like this is it, it first cuts us off in the past, but then history becomes something knowable, scientific. Um, human ad- action is logically an- analyzable. Heidegger kind of throws man into existence and mm-hmm. where, where he has no tradition. He has nothing that he comes from. He's just, but rather he's just always going towards to discover the meaning of himself. Um, so there's like a rudderlessness, rudderlessness in Heidegger and stuff like this. Anyways, but in all of this, there's a loss of one's rootedness in God, in God. And therefore, when you lose that connection, this is something actually Ratzinger, I've been noticing really likes to put an emphasis on when there's this loss of this connection between God and God and creature. We lose our notion of what it means to be human, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also, because there's no transcendent bearing anymore, the symbolic or poetic view of life, man, and meaning gets lost. Does that make sense? Does that logic make sense? All right, say it again. Okay. When you separate God from man, mm-hmm. and man is no longer seen as who he is in relationship to God as a creature, his limitedness gets lost um, 
because man has now tried to subsume God's infinity to himself. In, and so yeah. there's nothing, tra- there's nothing to transcendently bear anymore. There's nothing I, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's not a something greater that I am a symbol of. Right. So, yes. So it kind of throws, it utterly changes what communication is. Cause we talked about in the beginning, this idea of using symbol, using, you know, uh, finite creatures point towards infinite or truth, uh, true meaning. Mm-hmm. But if that ultimate truth, if that universal is gone, or if it's just been squished down mm-hmm. into creation, then we would say that you can no longer communicate um, accurately. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. And it creates what, like, yeah, it creates a, like what I would call like a fundamentalist literalism. Like mm-hmm. there's a reason literalism emerges in modernity. Yeah. <laughs> Language no longer has a symbolic value. It means what it means. Right. So you see this, I think you were saying earlier about how language is used as a weapon in political discourse. You said this, well, but I can twist it to mean this and it becomes mm-hmm. something because it doesn't actually mean words lose value. They become these weapons um, by which our understanding of who we are and how we relate to life in the world just becomes radically twisted. And, and every word you say is analyzed with a specificity and an intensity that I would, that I think is like radically inhuman. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how this affects uh, the way we do history. Um, and because we, we have a very, strong distrust of ancient historians because they're not just concerned with the exact words or facts of they're concerned with the story and the meaning and they see a story and a meaning and we automatically distrust that um it's a different way of looking at history itself um and it's also man man this is interesting because we've talked about um the historical critical method a lot and uh i have come around to the fact that yes it is helpful it's helpful Mm -hmm. Uh, but you don't have the historical critical method without the destruction of <laughs> of, of of universal meaning or a symbol. Um, that's fascinating. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Just thoughts about yeah. my head. No, no, exactly. And and um, I think your thing about because so because like this is the thing for modernity. Then like like so Marx really takes this this notion radically, and he says um, history as a past really because all it is is a recounting of alienation <laughs> uh-huh. has actually no usefulness to us. All that there is, is a future history that is mm-hmm. to be made yeah. through praxis. Um, so there's like this orientate, like there's this real ripping of history from its past and its present and forcing it towards only a future. So Heidegger kind of falls into this too. Cause like for Heidegger, he, he actually, it's actually kind of Protestant in how he views the history of philosophy. Cause he's like, we have to kind of rediscover the originary experience of being. And so mm-hmm. we need to just like, we, after we've done this history of, of being, although he just like skips over the middle ages and everything stupidly. Um, and, and the Heidegger is actually really interesting cause he's not all wrong and everything. Um, right. But he's like, we need to essentially remove tradition and rediscover that originary experience that the Greeks had with being again. Mm-hmm. And only there, 
because be, the, the word being itself has been so weighed down by language and culture and tradition. We have to kind of do it anew. You have to rip its past away to refine a new identity. That's Luther. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's mm-hmm. Luther, right? Um, and this is, this is the context we're living in, where our past is not really seen in, in any, there, there's no meaning to a past. All there is is a future. All there is, and like even how we as Catholics and Christians often see eternity, we often see it just as a pure future. Hope is something that's been imminentized towards an idyllic utopian reality, right? So this is part of the Marxist vision of things. Again, so Marx, interestingly, in despite his radical criticism of Christianity, actually usurps much of what Christianity has brought forward, which is like the notions of hope and history and meaning and stuff like this. Yeah, it's interesting because it actually points to uh, the suspicion. Uh, one of our callers whose name I can't remember, but doesn't matter because who knows if it's her real name was like, that's the suspicion that uh, she intuitively had about sometimes the way intercessions are written. Right. It's this kind of imitizing of what is, uh, is Indy going to sleep? Oh, Indy. Good night. Have a good nap. <laughs> she she gave a big toothless smile. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, anyway, I forgot what I was saying. Um, but uh, uh, about yeah. the caller about like intercessions and yeah, right, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's that um, that creeps in sometimes. Yeah, uh, into our faith. So okay, so let's bring this into kind of. Our, I'm going to make this an ecclesial context just for the sake of ease. Um, sure. So what's happened with this then is nowadays person and office have collapsed into one same thing. Mm-hmm. You see this, for example, and how every word of a pope is hung on to. Like, there's this weird secular ultramontanism, yeah. <laughs> whereby the word of any leader is is like a dogmatic declaration, yeah. right? And, and, and you see this, right? The pope says something on a plane, and everyone's in a tizzy about it, not realizing that it holds a no magisterial force whatsoever. It's a personal answer to a personal question, and that's all it is. And why? Because we see the person in the office as the same thing. Mm. Because when you lose the symbolic, when you lose the transcendent, when you lose analogy, um, you forget that the person in the office are not the same thing. Mm. And so what happens, but when you collapse person and office together, you now, it, 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 there's an there's a unspoken expectation that the person equates perfectly to the office. Every bishop has to say the right thing for what, and then there's this also like this at this on the other side of the whole thing. There is a there's a real weird subjectivism of the bishop needs to speak the things I want to hear when I want to hear them, how I want to hear them, and if he doesn't say things exactly the way I want to hear them, uh, I'm going to write him off. He is not living up to his office. Um, so I mean, I mean that's kind of solipsism that focus on uh personal truth even though a lot of people who would say no this is actually truth but it really just comes from their opinion um that's the collapsing of the universal into themselves this is this is the thing when when the infinite collapses into the finite uh i become the determiner of truth i become the determiner of means like you know not that i want to make boogeymen of these guys but like this begins really with descartes in many ways right with the Cogito ergo sum, like um, I become, I am the one who determines the truth reality. Reality doesn't reveal its truth to me. Like Ratzinger actually has this great phrase where he says, uh, we don't, 
we never grasp the truth. The truth grasps us. Mm-hmm. I've always loved that because it's the right relationship between particular and universal. That doesn't, and not because here's the thing, because these things all collapse into each other, um, the particular ultimately always gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. Right. Because like in the Hegelian system, it's all, it, the particular is needed along the way, but it's also ultimately for the world spirit to kind of finally come to know itself. And it's the perfect synthesis of the, of all the stuff. Anyways, um, perfect synthesis, synthesis all the stuff, of all, all the stuff. stuff. Um, Give this man yeah. a doctorate. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, but yeah, so this collapse of person and office in the church now, and you see this in a lot of discourse. And I'm not actually even bringing this up to like anything re- in recent news. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Mm-hmm. Because like, and there's like, there's a truth where there is weakness and there should be change and there should be reform and there, sh- there are inactions and, and improper responses. Mm-hmm. But because we collapse these two things, we say that each individual has to be the office that he bears. And when you do that, you're asking the impossible, which gives us the excuse and the ability to write everyone off. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they are not. And so this gets like Benedict's notions of re- relativism. Um, this is why he's talking about it. It's not just like an intellectual or philosophical position. It's, it's a real subjectivism of, I know what truth is. You do not. And you're not up to my standard of truth. But there's no real place for dialogue there. Right. It's funny because we, we like to paint uh, the seculars as the um, relativists. And there's a lot of truth to that. But it's very prevalent among Catholics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So how do we deal with this? Um, and, and, oh, and just one more thing. I think also this is like, this is a newer idea. So it's not as well developed. Um, but because of this collapse, even our experience of life becomes a lot harder to bear mm-hmm. because we think like, even like in the realm of a family, there's the expectation that my mom and my dad, because they bear the office of parent must be the perfect parent. Mm-hmm. And so there's real psychological emotional dysfunction that can grow from that expectation. So like, I think it gives like a real grounding to people's experiences today. Uh, But it's all rooted in like an axiomatic presumption that my parent has to be perfect. Right. But I think, uh, yes, I see that. I also see it on like a personal level, like the, the perfectionism and anxiety that's so rampant. Yep. Uh, in our culture right now, the same deal. Exactly. I have to bear perfect humanity in myself. <laughs> yep. This is it. So like it's it's real. It's yeah. a real experience, but mm-hmm. there's a philosophical root that I think needs to be unveiled and uncovered in all this. Yeah. I like it. Uh, I have one more point about this, but is there anything else you want to say about that? I've been kind of monologuing a lot on this one. No, no, it's good. Um, uh, when you said, uh, what, what do we do about this? My first thought was, let's all take a nap. <laughs> the caffeine's starting to, let's just all take a nap. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll finish it up here. I'm starting to fade. <laughs> okay. But it's good. It's good. And I've been pondering, it's been weird. It's been something, it's been something, the nice thing about even in school, even though it's not holidays, it feels a bit like a holiday which is probably weird for people to say, but 
you know, that's just who I am. Well, you know, but it's, it's learning, a slower, learning is leisure, my friend. It's a slower pace of life. I'm able to get a walk in every day. My prayer life is getting recentered properly. Um, um, the daily burdens of being a pastor are not there, obviously, because uh, yeah. I'm not close to there. Because I think at the same time, so what happens is when person and office become collapsible in the life of the family, in the life of the church, whatever it might be, the life of discipleship. This is why Acedia is actually a big thing. This is why like, I was really happy to read Pope Francis's catechesis today on May 25th, if people are looking for it. Um, Acedia becomes a real result of it because in the end, if you can't, if you feel like you have to be the universal that you're the bearer of, when you lack a symbolical worldview and a sacramental worldview, um, it's easy to just give up. Yeah. And to say, I will just be mediocre then. It's, it's the easier way. Um, and I think, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, whether we're priests or we have families, we probably all go through those moments. Mm -hmm. It would just be easier to, to turn off my care, my heart, and even my faith. Mm -hmm. It would just be easier. And in all of that, that's where a lot of the failure comes out in the church. Because I think, unfortunately and sadly, a lot of people, due to the hardship of office, if we're talking about church leadership, lose the sense of care. Mm -hmm. Because they've been constantly burdened. I mean, like, a pastor today, like, I have to do so much office time and just on my own, just because of all the administrative stuff I have to do for safe environment. And, all, and it's all good stuff. Like, I'm not against it, but right. it's tiring and exhausting and, and can be life sucking at times. Mm -hmm. But then I pond, I've been praying about this. And it's like, this is not filled out yet because I don't think that Jesus wants it to be filled out yet, I guess. I think the only way forward for the church in the world in the West is, is if she reclaims her prophetic nature. Hmm. Because a prophet is a symbol. Yeah. By their nature, the prophet bears a message in his lived existence, but he is not the message himself. Yeah. You see this all throughout the prophets. They are, yeah. they are people who fail, right? Like, um, who, like Elijah's like, just take me now, God. Like, I'm yeah. done. I'm done. Right. <laughs> so why? Because, but, but their self is put to the side for something greater. Mm. And in that, they actually become the great heroes of the tradition. And at the heart of prophecy in the Christian tradition is the person of Jesus. He is the perfection of his priest, prophet, and king. He is mm -hmm. the perfection of prophecy. And so for the Christian tradition, um, prophecy is, is witness. Mm -hmm. It's martyr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, because it says my life is not my own. Mm -hmm. I bear something greater than myself, but I am not the perfect bear. I am not the perfection of it. There's only one who is. Mm -hmm. And my job is to be a sign and a witness to that. And that's the saint. And I think if we want to start to heal uh, a lot of the issues of public discourse and politics and culture, 
the church needs to reclaim her prophetic nature, which means we need to become prophets, which means there is a certain radicalism of life. And, a, and like to be prophet means to stand differently towards the world. And to, where you're not going to be seeking the same worldly honors that everyone is, the same worldly success that everyone is. But even, even though you have a family, let's say, out of a generosity of heart, you're looking out for those in need, uh, for the poor, the abandoned, um, taking them in, um, living the life of the communion of the church. When the church can become prophetic again, both in her leaders and in her members, yeah. I think that can become a, we become leaven again. I really like this. Someone could write a book out of just this, fleshing uh, out this podcast. <laughs> Any thoughts on the notion of profit there? No, no, I. Uh, You're fading. <laughs> I'm fading. No, but I'm with you. Um, yeah. Uh, I um, am trying to uh, carry uh, the office of podcaster, realizing that I am a fallible human being. Uh, no, um, the prophet being symbol, um, or yeah, that's what I'm stuck on. Or even the who was the prophet who he used stuff all the time uh, there's like, a two sticks i'm trying to remember two sticks two. that's what i was I think, thinking about i think that was it isaiah we're such catholics we're such catholics yeah, I, know. I know some but prophet yeah. in the old testament had the two sticks to represent the two and and that's what god is also like telling the prophets that they don't have to be perfect in this they just have yeah. to uh bear with them this this meeting they don't have to be the meeting itself exactly um, uh and something about that i think that that I'm just thinking about how this um, is a, a balm for anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. um, that I'm thinking about like my priesthood. That's always, I think I struggle for most priests. It's like, I am a priest, but I am also Anthony who stayed up too late playing video games. How do these mm -hmm. two things work? I confect the Eucharist with my hands and my words. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also um, beat up Nicholas until he makes me coffee. Like this is, these are, <laughs> but when you, and that's not to say that, you abandon the work of holiness or of right. growing in virtue. Um, but it's just kind of realizing the limitations in that. And I think something about that, I get this intuition that is a very freeing sort of thing. Well, because it's, it's in the weakness that the communion with Jesus resides, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not like a, it's not because what we're saying here, it's not saying to be dispassionate about change. Actually, we're, it actually says I'm willing to change because I recognize I'm not the one who does the changing. And I'm never going to, I'm not going to be the ideal. Yeah. And embracing your weakness actually makes you a more powerful symbol. Yes, uh, exactly. Because you become a more powerful symbol of God's grace. Um, exactly. So your weakness actually ends up being a part of your holiness, which sounds both obvious and new to me right now. Three times I asked the Lord to remove this thorn from me. And he He's said, like, yeah. I know my grace is sufficient <laughs> for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Exactly. Therefore I will boast of my weakness for when I'm weak there, I'm strong because the power of Christ resides in me. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a word we need today. And that is what gives you the power to be prophetic because then the prophet ceases to care. Cause I think like, when it comes to reform, then prophet ceases to care about institution or sorry, institutional survival. Not that he doesn't. Institution is always vital to the life of the church. Right. You need institution, but institution always needs to be renewed by her and only flows out of charism. Yeah. Um, 
So for institution to be renewed, it also sometimes needs to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prophet is willing to allow that to happen because they know that the death itself becomes a sign and a symbol to draw people back to charism. So like, you know, whether it's like a religious order who's struggling to live out its charism, a parish, a priest, whatever it is, stuff has to die. Mm-hmm. And that the death is not hopeless <laughs> for us as right. Christians. Like we need to remember this. So like dying to myself is actually not a bad thing. Um, and dying to self says it requires first the acceptance that I am this, I am this weak sinner. Only then can I actually change. Yeah. And it would then depoison the discourse because we would start to approach everyone as they authentically are creatures mm-hmm. who bear a meaning that they are not. Yeah. And only there will things fix themselves, I think. I like it. I like it a lot. So how's that for an 8.30 a.m. podcast? Hey, I'm happy I stuck with you. Um, no, <laughs> I think it's good. That actually gave me a lot to think about and pray about with. So Yeah, it's It'll... been the fruit of my prayer, too. And it's like, it's like one of those, I mean, for me, always study and prayer kind of mingle together, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. So it's like, but it's been something that's been put on my heart, too. So it's like, I think I need to start talking about this. Mm-hmm. There we go. Cool. All right, guys. <laughs> that's terrible. It's going to be hard for Nick to edit these things because we're recording differently. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> And sorry for our listeners. Okay, but anyway, thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can't find me because I'll be taking a nap. You, you're entering into death, the death of Adam, as mm. the, the rib is ripped from the side. Uh, you can Beautiful. find me at FR Harrison or uh, secretly on Notre Dame's campus until June 5th. Yeah, see if you can find him. Uh, he'll give you a dollar if you find him, a Canadian dollar, which is like 42 cents. <laughs> Contact the podcast and receive updates at Clerical Pod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Do you have a theological emergency? Call 412-912-7995. 412-912-7995. If you are a funeral director and you're calling because someone didn't open up the doors of the church, don't call that number. Call the parish number. Um, so if you have a theological emergency, though, call 412-912-7995. Peace. God bless.